How much did Trump undermine American democracy for good? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Donald Trump has broken democratic norms throughout his presidency in words and deeds and tried to impede and overturn the results of the 2020 election. How much significant democratic backsliding did he create? And what did his presidency reveal about the strength and limits of our institutions? This week, I'm joined by Brendan Nyhan of Dartmouth and the Upshot for a special conversational edition. He's an organizer of Brightline Watch, an effort to survey experts and the public about American democratic norms, tracking their erosion. He finds significant signs of weakness, many of which are likely to last. I have an ever so slightly more optimistic view, so you'll hear me interject more than usual. Here's our conversation, which also offers a bit of 2020 year in review and post-election retrospective. Brightline Watch uh, has been going for 13 uh, waves of expert surveys uh, and 11 waves of the public surveys. Uh, what are the biggest things you've you've learned and the biggest surprises? Well, we've learned a lot about the state of U.S. democracy, both the good news and the bad news. I think we're really proud of the data that we've been able to put together tracking the status of U.S. democracy over this time period. We've never had such high-frequency data um, both in terms of perceptions of uh, U.S. democracy among the public and uh, perceptions of the of U.S. democracy among uh, political science experts too. So I think that's a, a important resource, and it's given um, uh, it's given us a, an anchor. You know, there's no objective, measurable way to directly assess democracy as such. How well is it working? But we think it gives an important window into how things have developed during the Trump presidency. So we're, we're, we're very proud of that. And I think, um, you know, what I've learned from it is um, just how multidimensional democracy is in the fullest sense. The, the full idea of liberal democracy that has this bundle that includes the rule of law, constraints on the use of power, and the exercise uh, of influence by the public uh, at the ballot box. And through public opinion's effect on elected representatives and so forth. That that full bundle is quite complex and thinking about its status is not an easy thing. So it's, it's been really helpful to me to disaggregate that and to think about all these different aspects. And then when we talk about the state of U.S. democracy, to be specific, do we think U.S. democracy is improving or worsening? And if so, in what areas, in what ways? And so I think we've been able to be more precise about that. So it sounds like you started thinking that there were bright lines that we might uh, cross or not cross, but ended up uh, thinking that it was a, a lot more complicated than a, than a clear line. So so talk about how this developed and where you think you succeeded and failed. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to say that we haven't crossed any bright lines because we've we've crossed a lot more lines than I, than I thought um, than I thought were possible to cross. I guess is that's a, that's a bit convoluted, but. I'm I, I'm struck by how much has happened since we started this project in early 2017. Um, it's been a long process, and what the Brightline Watch data helps us do is to see how far we've come. So we clearly started it because we were worried about the state of U.S. democracy after what we saw during the 2016 campaign. President Trump, um, then candidate Trump, repeatedly violated norms as a candidate in a way we had hadn't seen before in modern American political history. Brightline Watch was started um, by my colleagues, uh, Sue Stokes at the University of Chicago, Gretchen Helmke at the University of Rochester, and my colleague here at Dartmouth, John Kerry. Um, and I later joined the project to track the state of U.S. democracy, given that President Trump had won and would be entering office. So I think we've been successful at documenting just how far we've come and how many lines have been crossed and in what areas. So we can now see with the benefit of hindsight, not just that experts think U.S. democracy has declined since President Trump um, entered as a candidate and then took office, but we've seen in particular the areas in which they think U.S. democracy has declined. In particular, judicial constraints on the executive, legislative constraints on the executive, constitutional constraints on the executive, toleration of protest. Um, and um, refraining from using government agencies to punish your political opponents. So those are important principles of democracy. They're not the only ones, but those are the ones that really stand out over time as areas where experts have 
identify deterioration that we've seen during the time that we've been tracking uh, tracking the Trump administration. So yeah, let's uh, do an exercise where we talk about the sort of most alarming, uh, the least alarming, both in the the types of lines, uh, but also in kind of the, the characterization of the story. So uh, let's start out with uh, sort of the the most uh, the most alarmist possible version uh, of the story. Where, where are the clear cases where Donald Trump has uh, person has has violated democratic norms and undermined uh, democracy in the U.S. that 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 stand the most chance of, of lasting? Well, I think his, his ongoing attack on the peaceful transfer of power is the most obvious and important case. Our experts rate it as the uh, most important of the highly abnormal acts that have taken place during the Trump presidency. The peaceful transfer of power is, is central to democracy itself, and Trump has refused to accept the legitimacy of his defeat. He's encouraging his followers to view the election as illegitimate. He's scheming ways to overturn the election result. And he's encouraging a generation of Republican elected officials to emulate these tactics in the future, which I think could be incredibly destructive, even if he leaves the political scene after this election, which doesn't appear to be likely, but at some point he will leave. His legacy, though, could be calling into question something that had never been called into question in my lifetime. The you know high-ranking officials in the military have to disavow the prospect of them becoming involved in determining the outcome of an American election. No one does that in Denmark. No one does that in stable, consolidated democracies. The fact that the military has to say, no, we're not involved in determining who wins this election is itself a profound violation of democratic norms. You know, similarly, the president holding an election where, you know, declaring martial law or seizing voting machines is being contemplated, again, is a profound violation of democratic norms um, and an infraction which should lead to the immediate impeachment and removal from office of any president who contemplates um, using martial law to overturn the results of an election. So I think that that whole this whole series of events is incredibly alarming. Trump will not succeed. Joe Biden will be sworn in on January 20th. But it has expanded the set of possibilities and destabilized the expectations around the peaceful transfer of power in a way that I think is quite corrosive. So those sound pretty Trump specific, though. I mean, is it uh, he could inspire future generations, but they, they might also see it as a, as a long failed effort that looks foolish in retrospect. So what are the biggest signs that that these are, are permanent shifts? Is it, is it just that the actions are norm breaking and norm creating or are there, have there been real changes to our institutions uh, that are likely to be permanent? So this is the paradox of Trump. Most of his norm violations are rhetorical and not institutional. So we have to decide how much they matter. And it's it's very much a fair point to say that Donald Trump didn't accomplish very much when it came to policy. And most of what he did accomplish was conventional Republican policy or political goals, like um, cutting taxes and installing conservative judges. In, 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 the, in an institutional sense, he was um, often a very conventional Republican president. But these rhetorical acts are not without meaning and substance. You know, he has established a hold over the Republican Party that is going to shape the incentives of elected officials going forward. It's going to provide an important signal to those ambitious politicians who want to hold and um, achieve power that this is the way to inspire support and loyalty from their base. I think we underestimate the way that Trump can help determine the future of American politics through the party system. It's not the same as changing institutional rules or policies in the short term, but if he's changing the character of the Republican Party in the short to medium term, that's incredibly important. Who's going to run for secretary of state in Republican primaries in battleground states in the future? And who's going to be nominated coming out of those races? Who's going to win primaries as a candidate running in Virginia right now who says that Trump should declare uh, for governor, who says that Trump should declare martial law. Now, she appears to be such a fringe candidate that hopefully she'll be defeated, but there will be more candidates like that. And there will be more people like that. And I worry that we're starting to see Pandora's box open as other candidates 
respond to the demand for the, this, these kinds of illiberalism that Trump has helped to unleash. So another way of seeing it is that our institutions just uh, got a long series of uh, very tough tests uh, and uh, the courts and Congress and state institutions uh, and, and all of that uh, did did push back in some cases. So so talk to me about that case for a little bit. What, what would be the best case you could make that our institutions uh, showed their, their strength despite the, the threat from Trump? No, that's right. And it's an important piece of the story, too. You know, we need to be judicious. The threat is real, but the um, the areas of strength are important to highlight as well. Uh, you know, conservative judges turn back Trump's appeals, not just liberal ones. Um, his uh, efforts to overturn the election were laughed out of court, um, basically across the board, regardless of uh, the background of the judges. And that's a, a really encouraging sign. The local and state election officials who carried off a remarkably successful um, election during this pandemic um, are, are real heroes of the republic. Um, that's an incredible area of strength. And, and I think the military has, to a large extent, held the line against Trump and resisted being drawn into political controversies or um, being used uh, in ways that Trump might like it to be used as a kind of political prop or instrument for his agenda. So, uh, but I guess what I would say is these institutions will start to buckle under strain if they are not, if the pressure on them is not alleviated. The state, local and state elections, the people who get involved in those, if they face death threats, will leave the good ones. The bad ones will start to run. The, if the military becomes politicized, um, who gets promoted within the military, those norms around civil mil military relations may deteriorate. Um, we saw this with the Department of Justice, which at first uh, held the line to some extent under Trump, but once Bill Barr was there and was able to um, start more effectively uh, maneuvering the instruments of power, uh, we saw more and more violations of, of norms and um, previously standard procedures there than we'd seen before. So I, I think there are these real areas of uh, strength. Um, but they've, you know, they're not, um, uh, infinitely durable. They won't necessarily hold up if this pressure continues. We can, um, potentially turn the page, uh, but I, we shouldn't assume they will indefinitely be able to sustain this, this kind of pressure. Talk a little bit more broadly about the, 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 uh, bad signs and the good signs uh, sort of during the administration. Uh, what what did Trump try to do uh, during his administration um, beyond uh, set it up so that he could win the next election or overturn it? Um, and, and where was he successful and, and where were our institutions uh, more strong in, in uh, keeping it at bay? Yeah, well, so, you know, besides the attack on the election results, I think the the next most important event, according to our experts, was uh, the effort to use the president's power um, uh, as, you know, his executive power against uh, Joe Biden via pressuring Ukraine to investigate him. That was rated as um, almost as serious a threat to democracy um, as the uh, efforts to overturn the election um, by our experts. So I think that's a, a, a important um, moment. Um, our institutions held up in the sense that whistleblowers um, revealed Trump's actions and he was impeached, but he was not removed from office and only one senator was willing to cross party lines uh, to vote to remove him from office. So I'm not sure how much we should take away from that in terms of um, positive signs. Um, the president has also uh, attack the media on an ongoing basis. Um, he hasn't, that hasn't taken any particularly solid form. So I guess, you know, I mean, Matt, the, the question I think we should ask is how much do we congratulate ourselves that the president isn't locking up journalists? Like he's calling them the enemy of the people. Our institution's held in the sense that there, he's not throwing journalists in jail, but that's not the sort of thing that liberal democracies typically congratulate themselves for doing. Um, so I'm not really sure, uh, you know, how much we should, um, you know, see all of these things as victories. He said many illiberal things. There's a very long list. Most of them he did not act on. So there was a, a way in which the bureaucracy sort of ignored many of the president's uh, statements. 
that's a kind of victory, I suppose. Um, but I do think it's still corrosive that those claims are being made. Um, I also worry, actually, about the, the damage that's done when the president is saying to do things and unelected officials decide that it's important to ignore them. In this case, given the liberalism of the actions that are being called for, it's understandable, but I think we should worry about the idea of, for instance, the military deciding that it gets to decide which uh, civilian dictates it should listen to. Um, that's, again, not a especially healthy development for a democracy. What about the opposition party? It seems like uh, th- there was not exactly the one-upsmanship that, that some feared in anti-democratic actions. Um, as you say, the opposition party uh, impeached the impeached the president, um, uh, tried its hardest to get allies uh, in the president's party. Um, how, sh- how should we evaluate that? I'm not certain. I, I think it's fair to question the sometimes crude ways that Democrats talked about the Russia investigation um, as if it would be a kind of Scooby-Doo confession of uh, a collusion plot. There were certainly conspiracy theories offered that went beyond the available evidence and that were never corroborated. Um, I do think Democrats, with Democrats, I worry more about the future. I think there's a, a possibility of a kind of escalating series of constitutional hardball tactics um, being deployed against each other by the two parties in a way that could be destabilizing. We might have seen that if Joe Biden and the Democrats had won a landslide, for instance, and there was more momentum to do things like expand the size of the Supreme Court uh, that would be more aggressive forms of constitutional hardball. It doesn't seem like those things are in the cards now, but they do seem to be they do seem to have greater prospects on the Democratic side than they once did. And though, you know, there's an argument for constitutional hardball as a response to norm violations, but there's also a way in which it can be destabilizing. And I think that's why it's often split experts um, when they've debated the merits of those kinds of tactics as a response to uh, violations of democratic norms. So one uh, reading of the post-election period is that we just got lucky. Uh, if there was, uh, if it came down to only one uh, very close uh, state, uh, then it might have turned out differently. Uh, there's been talk about if there was one different judge in Wisconsin, maybe that verdict uh, would would have turned out uh, differently. Uh, I guess the the counter case is that you know. It, you don't really know much. You don't observe much about what would have happened in that case um, from, you know, seeing some dissents that that aren't going to go into effect. Um, How would you read it? How close did we come and how much is this dependent on these, you know, these accidents of history? It's a good question. I'm not someone who thinks that Trump would have been successful necessarily in overturning the election if it had come down to one state. But I think it's we have reason to worry that the effort to overturn the election could have become much more serious and destabilizing in that circumstance. We saw almost two thirds of the House Republican caucus sign on to the Texas lawsuit, even under the circumstances when it had almost no chance of overturning the result. Um, And we've seen many Republican officials back this effort, even though the chances of success were very low and the legal arguments were considered preposterous. Doesn't that even if work both ways? I mean, it, you say it's even if, but uh, that might be because of uh, that is this was a fairly costless action at the at the moment. Um, and we might not be able to to conclude from that that they would have done it in a circumstance in which it, it might have uh, been more destabilizing. Total, totally fair. So there, you know, one I think one area that political scientists are debating right now is how much of what. Republican politicians are doing right now is cheap talk, right? Would they do this in, if, if, if push came to shove um, when it might really be decisive? Um, uh, yeah, that's a counterfactual we haven't observed, so I can't evaluate it. It's, it's certainly possible it's cheap talk. Um, it's certainly possible they just wanted to send a signal to their base and they wouldn't really follow through on it. Um, on the other hand, y- you know, we're, we're seeing people take actions that have few that have few uh, recent precedents in American political history. These are remarkable things to do. I mean, you know, it's cheap talk in a way. Yes, you're just signing on to a court case that's going to be defeated. But on the other hand, you are you are violating norms that were unquestioned 
until recently. So that that still seems to me quite serious. Again, these counterfactuals are very difficult. And I don't think it's hard for me to imagine the election actually over be, actually being overturned. If it had come to that, I think there would have been millions of people in the streets, millions. And we would have, um, it's hard for me to imagine uh, the result actually changing, but we could have gotten to a much worse place. I think one way to think about it is that the margin within which an election can fall, where we're now subject to Florida-like contestation is far wider than we anticipated. And that's that's quite destabilizing to me. Haven't we observed some gains uh, since 2000 as well in our electoral institutions? I mean, it's striking to me that they had an opportunity to find problems in five different <laughs> states, uh, and they really found almost nothing uh, in, in contrast to 2000 when there were several open debates about uh, when to count, how to count. Um, and, and in our cases, the, the standards for recounts were fairly clear. There was a lot of contestation of the pre-election rules um, made by different states and localities, but the process ha might have become clearer since 2000. I hope that's the case, but it's it's inevitably true that because of our decentralized electoral system, there's always heterogeneity that can be exploited. So it doesn't seem that, you know, widespread voter fraud is a myth. So yes, they were not able to find voter fraud, but you can often find differing standards or differing procedures in ways that if enough bad faith actors are involved, there's an, there's an opening. Um, I would also, you know, make sure that we put on the table, Matt, something that I know you know, which, but the audience may not fully be aware of, which is if these margins had been closer, those pre-election rules you referenced could actually have faced more serious legal challenges, right? So Pennsylvania set aside its late arriving ballots. Those turned out to not be of a number that could have been decisive, but it's considered more plausible by some legal experts that conservative judges might have thrown out those ballots under an interpretation of who has the power to make uh, judgments about how electoral votes are, are uh, allocated um, that would have been in a way quite radical, right? So it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not just Rudy Giuliani style clown show legal challenges. That is a more serious prospect. Now, it turned out the margins were just large enough in some of these pivotal states that those late arriving ballots weren't decisive. But there's, again, a world where those margins are closer. Now, Pennsylvania's ballots are potentially able to swing the election to Trump. That was That's seen as a more plausible kind of legal challenge, even though it is uh, potentially a quite uh, radical step in you know overturning powers given to election officials to set the rules of their election. So one of the main findings of your public surveys is that we interpret uh, these norm violations through partisan lenses uh, and polarization uh, makes that uh, worse. Um, um, you're, you're relying on experts uh, to judge these democratic bright lines. And the experts are disproportionately Democrats, uh, liberals, and even on the Republican side, anti-Trump. Anti so how well uh, can the public uh, judge these violations and how well can experts, given that we are increasingly and largely affiliated with one partisan side? Well, it's a fair question. Um, you know, academia is what it is, and there's no way around that. I guess what I would say is judge our experts on how they evaluate the Trump presidency. And I think if you look at the time series in a careful way, you'll see that it wasn't just a kind of knee-jerk anti-Trumpism. And in fact, many of our ratings were quite stable for the Trump presidency. It wasn't as if liberals said democracy has been ruined in all of these areas. In fact, their evaluations, the overall quality of U.S. democracy were quite stable, and they reflected the judgment of experts, I think, quite reasonably that while U.S. democracy deteriorated somewhat relative to its um, 2015 or prior levels, you know, it's not Russia, it's not Hungary, it's not Poland. And that was, again, reflected in the, the ratings they were giving. So I don't think there's a, a simplistic, clear interpretation of the data as uh, reflecting our experts' biases. Um, and I guess what I would then point to for those who are skeptical, uh, given the backgrounds of our experts, is that there's a consensus in expert evaluations um, across all the different surveys of this type, including political scientists who are outside of the United States as well. So the 
the VDEM survey, the Economist, Freedom House, and Brightline Watch are all seeing declines in the quality of U.S. democracy. So it doesn't seem to be specific to our survey or even to U.S. experts. Yeah, I would assume that most of those international surveys are, are also of, of people who are disproportionately on the on the po- political left. But uh, how should we take the the right expert reaction? I mean, on on the one hand, it's it's kind of in, indicative of the of the Trump's impact that a lot of conservative leaning experts uh, have been the most alarmed. On the other, it might be taken as as just evidence that uh, the this is becoming an increasing cleavage in our democracy and other democracies uh, between uh, experts and the the conservative uh, public. How how should we read that? No, I think you're right to point to the number of conservative experts, um, both in academia but also pundits and other folks with relevant expertise who've who've spoken out, um, often at quite significant cost to their own careers. I don't think it's easy to dismiss those people's judgments as reflecting some kind of partisan impulse or career incentive. In many cases, they've destroyed their own careers in the Republican Party or the conservative movement to speak out, or they've limited the opportunities that are available to them. So I, I find those convincing. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, I I don't there is no long list of pro-Trump academics who we can go to and say these people agree that uh democracy is is you know also declining. Um but that's something of a weird judgment. If if your professional judgment is that democracy is declining, why would you back the figure who is um the vanguard of the t- the deterioration that you observe, right? So that's a kind of strange paradox to expect anyone to have that kind of expert relevant to, uh, you know, at, at hand to point to. So you uh, spoke about the the differences in international surveys uh, and domestic surveys or lack thereof. Um, uh, but we have had a debate since the beginning of the Trump administration about sort of the, the need for a, con- a comparative lens on this. So talk about what you've learned by working with a comparative perspective. What, what do they know that Americanists uh, don't know or didn't know before this presidency? What I've been most struck by in talking to comparativists and reading them is the way that democratic erosion can be almost imperceptible, that it doesn't happen in the model of the mid 20th century fascist takeovers. Um, The comparativists have always, uh, with the comparativists who, who know this field well, have always described the process as being much more gradual in its modern form. And I think that's a critical insight. Every time I participate in this debate, I find people basically saying an aversion of, well, the tanks aren't in the streets yet, so everything is fine. And that's just not the way that democracies decline in the world we live in. And it hasn't been for some time. Comparativists have told us democratic erosion is far more piecemeal and that there's a uh, you know, democracy is really a continuum, not a binary concept. And it's it's very possible to have significant democratic erosion, even if ultimately the incumbent leaves office when they're defeated, as we're going to observe here, even if there are elections held, as of course there are elections held here and so forth. And I think the complexity of that picture, the way democratic erosion can coexist with many of the tr- institutional trappings of democracy is a critical insight and one that we need comparativists to play an important role in amplifying within our own political debate here. And what about the other side? Is there evidence that we knew more about, say, how Trump would interact with the Republican Party in Congress, uh, about sort of how how strongly we should take signals coming from from the top? I'm not sure uh, people who study U.S. politics can um, cover themselves in glory on, on this one. We didn't expect Donald Trump to be able to win the Republican primary, given that he was such an outsider and we thought that primaries, um, that parties could more effectively screen primary candidates. That was a a real failure. And in general, I think American politics specialists, myself very much included, just failed to anticipate the potential for significant democratic erosion. Certainly the risk of constitutional hardball destabilizing our politics was there. I think polarization had made those scenarios more salient. But the kinds of democratic erosion we're seeing, I think Americanists really failed to anticipate. Actually, I'm curious if you think there's something that we did 
bring to the table here. I mean, perhaps you could say that the resilience of our institutions means that we, you know, we're not yet Hungary or Poland, but I'm, I'm not eager to congratulate ourselves from that. I mean, we have, you know, a 200 plus year history of, you know, at least some bare minimum of democracy that we have so many advantages that other countries don't. The fact that, um, you know, we're having the, the peaceful transfer of power challenge after four years of one president, I don't think is a, is a, powerful demonstration of the resilience of our institutions. Yeah, I would just say the the, the couple things that we got right were that in, in office, um, you know, Trump would, would not be as much of an aberration on the policy side uh, because he would be working within the Republican Party. And that limited the sort of potential popular appeal of Trump in a way that, that might not have been limited if the Republican Party had been able to, say, quickly switch directions on uh, economic policy. Uh, and then uh, the other is the polarization uh, and um, thermostatic movement, which meant that um, both the uh, public and the Democratic Party would move and mobilize strongly against uh, a Trump presidency, but that that would not mean, you know, a new consensus. It would just mean continued uh, polariz- continued close polarization, but sort of enough to, uh, to make the electoral uh, and public opinion wins move in, in the other direction. No, that's that that that's a that's a fair statement. I, I want I want to be clear for the audience that the first part really, you are one of the leaders in speaking out on that point, and you've really influenced my my thinking on that. So so credit where credit is due. The the way the Republican Party captured Trump on policy prevented him from being the kind of um, pro, you know kind of infrastructure, big spending, populist right figure that many people thought could have more appeal. He became a kind of um, illiberal version of a Republican with a conventional set of policy positions and positions on judges and so forth. And actually, so he's this kind of unusual figure and then he's a demagogue who's not very popular. We usually think of demagogues as having these incredibly popular appeals, but instead Trump is holding a, a series of fairly unpopular positions and never was uh, breaching the 50% uh, approval level anytime uh, he was in office. So that is a, a quite uh, striking finding. Yeah. I and mean, yeah, it's certainly right. Polarization locked Democrats in place against him. Um, but it also, if I can add one other point, yeah, I guess Americanists could say the way that um, partisanship uh, helped lock people in place also helped lock Republicans in place in favor of Trump um, in a way that we saw almost no variation in his approval ratings. That was a trend that we'd been documenting over time that approval ratings were um, becoming uh, less variable within the Obama presidency. They varied within a much narrow, narrower window. And in that way, Trump really continued that trend. So there were some insights from past studies that could be applied there. So let's uh, talk about the broader question of, of how, I guess, how much we can learn during the during the Trump presidency. Obviously, you started the survey uh, after the presidency began, so it's hard to kind of get a baseline. Uh, and two sort of, uh, I guess, objections to the to the Trump specific trends. Uh, let's let's talk about the the broader racial history one first. So, uh, you know, people, uh, some people obviously say, well, you're, you're claiming that there's a we're declining from this uh, grand level that U.S. democracy was at, but uh, but of course, uh, in the South and more broadly in our racial history, uh, there's lots of evidence that uh, we have had autocratic tendencies for lots of our uh, history. So, I guess, how should we think about the current democratic violations um, in in light of that long history? No, I think it's a very important point. I think it's the the best response to the, for instance, the book "How Democracies Die" is that. Um, the South was an authoritarian enclave until the the mid 1960s, and we we did not really become a full democracy until very recently. We congratulate ourselves on the 200 plus year history of, of of U.S. democracy, as I alluded to. But in fact, we only really became a full democracy in um, the latter half of the 20th century. And you know, our expert judgments reflect that to the extent that we're able to observe them. So we've asked experts to rate the quality of U.S. democracy um, retrospectively at a series of points in time. And you see them using that same scale. We have them evaluating the quality of U.S. democracy now, um, really rating U.S. democracy as only achieving the, the levels that uh, existed prior to Trump in uh, starting in the mid-1970s. So it's really after the civil rights era that um, 
that experts see democracy in the U.S. as achieving that level. And they certainly don't see it as perfect. Even going back to our very first surveys, there were a number of areas that they rate U.S. democracy as not performing very well. And many of them relate, for instance, to the status of you know, the voting rights of all members of society, different kinds of, of, of principles like that. So I don't, I don't um, want to suggest, and I don't want the listeners to think that the experts are unaware of the problems with U.S. democracy. I think those were built into the ratings. At the same time, though, the experts were also aware, I think to a greater extent than the American public, how U.S. democracy compared relatively favorably to many governments around the world, especially prior to Trump. And that was being reflected in their ratings. There were some areas they rated U.S. democracy as much better than the public, precisely because they were aware of the ways in which our democracy, while very much imperfect, still exceeded the standards you know seen in many other parts of the world. So the other version of this is uh, uh, looks more recently at the history of the Republican Party and says that a lot of things that are being attributed to, to Trump uh, did have precedent uh, within the Republican Party. Um, there was uh, certainly uh, polarization and not only on uh, policy, but on tactics within the Republican Party. Uh, there is also, of course, a broader history of parties on the right, um, those representing the, the economic upper class um, being less in favor of democratizing reforms. Um, so, you know, how, how should we evaluate the counterfactual where the Republican Party is moving in, in the same direction, uh, say under a President Ted Cruz, uh, but uh, we don't have Trump the, the individual? Uh, were there signs we should have seen before? Um, and, and are we able to pick them up now? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how to evaluate that counterfactual because the Democratic norm violations we've seen are not the ones that I would worry about most under a President Cruz or Rubio or Jeb. Um, again, I would more worry more about the kinds of constitutional hardball that we've talked about a little bit than refusing to accept the outcome of an election or pushing foreign countries to investigate your opponents. That those don't seem to have the same kinds of recent precedents. I could certainly see those uh, leaders pushing the boundaries of executive power, um, maybe you know building on the precedents from uh, the Obama years and prior presidencies. And I could imagine difficult interbranch conflicts over um, the powers of the presidency. I can certainly imagine lots of nasty language and things like that, but I, I have a tr I have trouble uh, drawing a straight line from uh, from those folks to what we've seen. I'd be curious if you if you you know how how you would tell that story. We've been telling a very top down story that this was Trump, people reacting to Trump, um, but there are other people who tell the story about the uh, openness uh, to this within the Republican public about uh, the, the spread of conspiratorial misinformation, of course, about the anti-immigrant backlash that was uh, uh, present before. And so there are people, I think, who see this as a more... I don't know if we want to call it natural, but a more expected uh, trend um, from the rise of, of multi-ethnic uh, democracy um, that would say, you know, this, if not inevitable, these trends were in progress before Trump arose. I think I think you could tell a story where the move towards a kind of white identity politics and a more aggressive form of immigration backlash was, if not inevitable, likely the Republican Party was quite a bit out in front of its base on those issues. And Trump saw that and harnessed it. But if he had not, someone else might have. So I could, I can imagine that turn taking place. Um, in some ways, the Republican Party's failure to co-opt that force, which is what allows Trump, in part allows Trump to vault to the nomination, along with the disproportionate media attention he attracts, um, you know, that creates an opening for an outsider who doesn't play by the norms of the political system. Um, it, it's not it's not an out, I'm not a comparative politics expert, but from my understanding, it's not unlike the challenge facing mainstream right parties in Europe that face um, fringe right parties where they're trying to co-opt the sentiment that those parties appeal to um, while keeping them out of power, given the illiberalism that they uh, endorse. So the Republican Party's, um, you know, in this case, you know, 
the the failure of the politicians to supply the anti-immigrant positions that the base demanded created an opening that Trump uh, exploited and someone else might have exploited. But um, again, it's hard to see who the equivalent figure is who would have been so dramatically illiberal within the ranks of the conventional contenders for the party nomination. So this is uh, tied to the issue that you mentioned before about uh, how much we should, uh, how much emphasis we should place on on Trump's uh, comments uh, himself. Obviously, we've had a recurring debate about how seriously to to take the the, the anti democratic tweets. Uh, we also have a uh, a long running story where uh, Trump's most extreme comments are immediately leaked uh, to to the press, um, and and some people see those as signs of weakness rather than strength. Um, that is that, that he's making these, these comments, but unable to carry them out or convince anyone to go along with them. Um, it sh- should not be seen as a, as a sign of strength. Um, I take it you're on the other side, but maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm worried. I'm worried about, uh, I'm worried about these comments, um, in part because, uh, eventually someone might listen to them. And especially when the comments are demanding things, which are not illegal, but which violate norms. Those are areas where um, there are vulnerabilities. We've seen again and again in this presidency that the norms are the weak point of our system. Trump has been foiled when the obstacle he faces is a law, but when it is a norm, he can often bulldoze through it. So uh, another version, or perhaps a separate argument, is uh, about the the political uh, tractability of these arguments uh, that Trump is violating norms. So I guess let's let's take it as an even if argument. Even if uh, these uh, regular Trump comments are extremely alarming, uh, we had a debate about impeachment and Trump actions. We had a debate about impeachment. We have a debate surrounding the the Lincoln Project ads, where there are some people who say. Look, this is exactly the right focus. Trump is an aberration. We should be calling him that. And there are people who say, even if that were true, it's not the best political argument. It's not good for limiting Trump uh, by tying him to the Republican Party. It's not the best uh, for winning elections or generating public opposition to Trump. Um, you know, in the most extreme form, let's say it's it's much better to to talk about uh, it you know, cutting, cutting taxes on, on the rich and, and, and taking away your entitlement programs, um, than it is to, to talk about this. And it's much, much better to portray Trump as a, as a, as a, the face of the Republican party rather than an aberration. Uh, how should, I guess the public experts and, and analysts, uh, deal with that trade-off if it exists? I'm, I'm convinced by these arguments that the best way to oppose, a uh, illiberal populist is through conventional, political arguments. You know, there's there are analyses suggesting that Hillary Clinton talked too much about why Donald Trump uh, was a terrible person in 2016 and not enough about the kinds of class issues that helped limit Obama's losses uh, among working class whites. Um, you know, there's evidence from other countries that defeating populists often requires beating them on these conventional political issues. But so I'm I think as a political scientist, I think those arguments are often convincing. I don't think um, people have uh, a deep sense of how democratic norms um, impact their everyday life. And that's okay, by the way. Um, You know, politicians' jobs uh, are to make people's lives better. And democracy is a very abstract concept. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to worry about the well-being of themselves and their family and their community more than these abstract notions. Um, you know, for me personally, I'm speaking as an expert, not as a Democratic Party strategist. So I'm 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 unconcerned with the the political case for or against highlighting um, these democratic norm violations. I just think it's it's critical to highlight them be- precisely because I'm worried that we're starting to lose sight of just how abnormal they are. And I've felt that one of the roles I could play during this time was just to keep reminding us how crazy what's happening is and how ab- utterly abnormal it is and what a break with our democratic traditions uh, it has been. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right to, to suggest that, you know, democratic norms are not uh, going to be moving uh, swing voters or something. That's certainly the case. Um, 
you know, that's just not really my purpose. So I, I think you've also been active in sort of upgrading the importance of the the petty corruption um, that the Trump administration has engaged in as a as a norm violation, and maybe downgrading the perceived importance of of fake news and and information spread. So talk a little bit about those. Where did you come down on on those two, and and why did you make those decisions? Yeah, so I one of the areas where I tried to highlight the break with past norms is uh, the way that uh, Trump has um, refused to play by post Watergate rules as far as disclosing his um, financial background, um, separating his interests um, from those of his business and and other kinds of um, steps that we've taken to limit the potential for corruption or undue influence on the president. Trump has refused to play by any of those rules, and I thought it was important to highlight that difference. It's not the most important issue, but I do think it's a symbolically important one. And it's also one, actually, that my my colleagues at Brightline Watch and I found in an article we published uh, where, at least in principle, there's the potential for some consensus that um, people across the political spectrum thought it was important to prevent politicians from enriching themselves uh, while in office and perceive that to be a, a real flaw in the existing political system. So th- that might at least be a democratic norm where we could not just agree about the abstract notion that it was important, but we might see that it is a, an ongoing problem. And in that way, drawing attention to that, v- that violation could be, could be valuable. But isn't that sneaking in the criteria you just excluded? <laughs> that is, uh, this this the reason this was more important is because it's actually a politically better argument than generic de- democracy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, again, I I I, de- I, I declaim being a strategist. Fair enough. Um, but you know, and again, I'm, this isn't about getting Democrats uh, elected. It's it's just about an area where the defense of democracy might actually be appealing to the everyday person because they really do worry that politicians are taking advantage of the system to enrich themselves. In this case, there is evidence that the president is taking actions that financially benefit himself while he's in office. Now, um, you know, we can talk more about how serious that is. Again, I don't think it's the most important norm violation by a long shot, but I do think people have a right to know that about their their government. It's important to highlight just, again, how abnormal it is. Um, You asked me to talk about... um, uh, oh, the role of fake news. So yeah, if we can if we can talk about that, I think it's important. After Trump won in 2016, people went searching for some kind of simple monocausal explanation. The reason, in quotes, Trump won. And um, so-called fake news and Russian interference were the easiest stories that people could point to. Um, and I've um, been one of many social scientists who's tried to point out that both of those accounts really lack any convincing um, empirical evidence to support them. We can talk more about the details if you like, but um, I do think those are areas where people have um, overstated the likely effects on especially swing voters. Um, you know, the magnitudes, uh, you know, the scope of those, uh, of exposure to those kinds of interventions and their likely effects, they, there's just no way that they're... Um, but they were decisive in 2016. I, I've seen no evidence to indicate anything uh, like that is, was possible in 2020 as well. They're very serious concerns. We can talk more about them, but I think they were sometimes used as a kind of simplistic explanation for why Trump won. And, um, you know, I've really tried to push people on the evidence for that. Yeah, I'm just wondering again if we're we're letting the political criteria back in, which I favor. <laughs> Let me just say, I don't, I don't think, um, I, I, I think it is, uh, it's odd to to take the view that we don't want to consider the political import of our <laughs> of our arguments uh, about uh, democratic decay. If we're worried about it, then we want to figure out uh, whether being being publicly worried about it is influential but but on this side it seems like you could make the case that uh, most that a lot of republicans believing or a lot of democrats on the other side believing uh clearly false things is is a is a huge problem for for democracy even if it doesn't make uh, a lot of difference electorally oh absolutely and and you know that's most of my scholarly research as you know so i'm um i'm i'm certainly very concerned about um the prospect for misinformation um, harming 
our political system, but I think we need to be more precise about the ways in which it is harmful. Um, in some ways, uh, Donald Trump has been a reminder of two facts that I try to emphasize when I talk about this with public audiences. The first is that elites are the most important source of political misinformation, not foreigners and not obscure websites. The political elites who drive the news cycle, who generate, um, you know, who are the actors in the mainstream media coverage that's still where most people um, get their information. However, you know, it eventually makes their way to them digitally. It's still ultimately largely coming from relatively conventional sources, and it largely centers on those political elites. And Donald Trump has made more than 20,000 false statements as president. He's the most covered man in the world. He is generating far more misinformation than um, Macedonian teenagers or Russian operatives posting weird memes on on Facebook. That doesn't mean the others aren't a problem, but um, elites are the first order problem, um, and it's not close. So I think I think he uh, reminds us of that. He also reminds us that misinformation can be very harmful in it, the way that it can influence policy. Um, you know, we can we can go through different examples. You know, talk about climate change or healthcare. We talk about voter fraud and the, the the challenge to the election being based on the myth of widespread voter fraud. So I think the the threat model for misinformation has been misunderstood. We focus too much on swing voters having their minds change in general elections and not nearly enough on the harmful effects of misinformation from elites on um, especially their own supporters and the ways in which those false claims can be translated into or influence policy. So let's talk about where we uh, see things going from here or what should we should we should look for. Um, I was just struck by reading the the post-Nixon history that, um, you know, we did have another president who tried to interfere in elections, who violated uh, a lot of uh, democratic norms. And although we did have more uh, members of Congress, of course, eventually break uh, with, with Nixon, a lot of the people who succeeded in the Republican Party afterwards, including Ronald Reagan, did not really ever decisively uh, break uh, w with Nixon and, and turned out fine. So I guess, uh, do we overstate the, the extent to which there will be or, or could be a sort of a decisive break uh, with, with Trump that we've been, all been waiting for. And, you know, what should we look for to, to see if uh, the, the uh, impact of Trump uh, will or to see how much the impact of Trump will be ongoing? I think that's a very important point. Um, people, especially people my age or younger, learn a kind of potted history of Watergate that is incredibly simplistic um, and really doesn't take into account how long it took for Republicans to break with Nixon. And um, and how much, as you emphasize, um, the institutional Republican Party continued forward with people who played uh, key roles or supported Nixon continuing in, in positions of power and influence. Um, it's just not the dramatic break that it seemed. Now, Watergate is different in that there was there was a whole there was a whole suite of reforms enacted and norms created after that presidency that seems very unlikely to be replicated. So if anything, I would expect even more persistence and even less change. Um, you know, there was a, you know, we can go through the list of all the different areas that um, Watergate led to some real changes in constraints on executive power, for instance. Um, it doesn't seem like those are in the cards now. Now, you know, that I guess that's a question we, we can ask, you know, what constraints will be uh, put on future presidents that may prevent the kinds of violations we've seen under Trump. So I think the mistake people have made is to think that the only way Trump can influence the Republican Party is if there is another Trump. But I think it's fair to say he's probably sweet generous. Josh Howley is not about to go up and do an hour and a half rally, you know, stand up set. That's just not who these people are. But there are ways in which aspects of Trump's appeal could be integrated into more conventional kinds of Republican politics. Um, and we need to monitor that. That's going to be a critical uh, area to watch. I'm also interested in who wins primaries when there are more or less Trumpy candidates running um, and the extent to which the most talented uh, politicians in the Republican Party try to avoid getting on the wrong side of the pro-Trump uh, part of the party, which is, of course, most of it. Um, ultimately, for there to be a break with Trump, there would have to be an anti-Trump faction that has a meaningful uh, you know, level of influence in the Republican Party. But as you know, there such a thing doesn't even really exist. There is no line of cleavage 
there is no uh, organized group of anti-Trump Republicans within the party. It's not even a faction. Most of the people who are strongly anti-Trump have retired or been defeated. There's a handful of people who appear to be not especially enthused, but they're not speaking out publicly and they're certainly not organizing. We'll know more in the future, but if Trump continues to at least hold out the threat of running in 2024, he's going to lock a lot of people in place in a way that makes it very hard for that debate to progress. So I would say in the short to medium term, we should expect a lot of this um, to continue. I'm not uh, optimistic that there's going to be a significant break anytime soon. Yeah, not to draw too much from the from the Nixon uh, era analogy, but but I do think that I guess I just have a very different view of that history. I think uh, first of all, most of the reforms failed uh, in campaign finance. In <laughs> in no, no uh, disagreement on the success of the reform. I mean, in, in nominations in Congress, uh, pretty much were were all around failures, um, and the. This sort of break that people were, were looking for um, didn't didn't happen then either, but it, it didn't happen because there was Democratic overreach followed by a Republican um, response um, and in a way that that didn't, I guess, require that break. So there's no anti anti Trump faction in the Republican Party, but there certainly is the capacity for for resurgence uh, in response to to Democratic policymaking. And we, we may be about to see it. I think people may just be expecting more of a, I guess, a question of a Trump or not Trump uh, being bigger than than uh, than than you'll need when it will really be anti-Democrat will be the the resurgence, um, regardless of of how Trumpian the the figures are. Oh uh, no! Can, can we can we can we hold on that for one second? I mean, a hundred percent. The the you know, twenty twenty two Republicans are going to be trying to rerun a Tea Party type backlash strategy. Under those circumstances, why, how would anti-Trump figures who want to moderate the direction of the party ever find a foothold? I mean, this is very, this very unfavorable terrain for changing the direction of a party. Well, it depends on what you mean by changing the direction. Again, that didn't happen under Nixon either. It's it, they didn't break with with Nixon, but they did bring the party in a different direction. And uh, it is possible that a new Tea Party uh would change the trajectory of the Republican Party without being explicitly anti-Trump. Um, you know, I, I think it is quite possible for uh, Cruz-type faction to become more important um, in in the future, um, even if they never broke uh, with uh, with Trump and to pursue a different different set of of strategies. Um, but but let I guess get, like, give me your view. What should we be looking for in the future? What will be the signs that things are changing or not changing? And what will you be doing? What's the future of of right line in tracking this under the Biden administration? Yeah, so I I think we should track the efforts to rebuild our democratic institutions and norms um, to see if there are any changes that are made. And actually, if they're successful, I, you know, as you alluded to, the, the post-Watergate reforms are at best a very mixed bag and political scientists have um, conflicted views about a lot of those changes. It's not obvious that reforms are always a, a good thing, even though it's clear that we've seen the need for changes. Um, we need to be careful about what, where we go. But um, I, I want to emphasize that we should look not just to the federal level, but to the state level. That's not just where the next generation of politicians are um, making their names. But, you know, I, I've started to refer to the states as laboratories of democratic erosion. In some cases, that's where the most aggressive efforts to um, change norms or undermine institutions are happening. And that's an area I'll be watching very closely during the Biden administration, particularly when it comes to voting rights and election administration. Um, as far as Brightline Watch, you know, that's a, a conversation that my my fellow organizers and I need to have. We need to think about what role we want to play and what financial support is available to us and and, and make a decision. We haven't uh, gotten there yet, but, you know, we hope to um, at least continue the time series of evaluations of democracy in some form to keep providing the data that will allow other scholars to weigh in on this debate and um you know, keep it central to the research agenda of the field. And anything else uh, we didn't get to that you wanted to include? I think this is a great podcast and I I'm, I'm, uh, appreciate you having me here. And um, yeah, thank you for the great questions. And I, you know, I guess I would emphasize um, for everybody that, uh, you know, this is the first draft of, of, of history, you know, in a, in a scholarly sense, you know, we're just starting to get our arms around what's happened in the last four years. I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, you've asked really good questions, and I think they're ones we should think about 
Um, and they're the ones, they are ones that I will be thinking about a lot too, as I try to make sense of everything we've just experienced. Well, thanks for joining me. We know there's a lot more to learn. Uh, listeners can go to brightlinewatch.org to get uh, not only all the reports, but all the data to do their own uh, analyses. And uh, we hope you'll join us next time on the Science of Politics. Mm-hmm.